Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show from the UK. Thanks for having me. So, Dan, you know, there's lots of things we can talk about, but I suppose a guy whose last name starts with the word salad would be interested in food, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and I there's a, many reasons why I've ended up in, a, in a, a journalistic career that covers food and farming. I don't know how much my name has played a part in that, but <laughs> my name is, <laughs> my name, um, is um, from Sicily. Yes. And my father, my father arrived in the UK in the 1960s. Um, he migrated and I spent my summer holidays traveling to Sicily when I was a child, often on my own, staying with my grandmother. And, and it was in Sicily um, that it was the first time that I, I stepped foot on a farm. Uh, it was also a place where, uh, unlike my experience in the UK, people really <laughs> wanted to talk about food and yes. disagree with food and have arguments about food. So um, I think the name as a clue to my Sicilian background is, in, is important and relevant. Yes. I mean, I've followed your work for quite some time. I've read a lot of your publications and so on. And I am what I would like to call a food philanthropist. So right now <laughs> I'm in Latin America. And what I do is every now and again, I like to go to new countries but not to any of the famous restaurants. I like to go to some of the villages and spend like maybe four or five days with some community, learn mm -hmm. about their history and see what food they have out there. So I've been reading a lot and I've been covering many of the famous chefs and so on. But what's interesting is the angle you've taken in your recent work, which is about the extinction of certain species and subspecies of food. I've never read anywhere anyone talk about the extinction of food species what made you go in that direction mm. well it's it's interesting that you mentioned your approach to food and in a sense that's what i did for the book um if i had uh, been a journalist interested in food and, and 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 based my research around chefs and restaurants i would have got one view of the world exactly Perhaps yes that would have, yeah that would have given me possibly uh, you know an idea of abundance and huge amounts of diversity and experimentation and innovation but it was in those communities that um i i was lucky enough to visit because of my work with the bbc yes uh, i make i make a weekly radio program about food and farming and that's taken me around the world and it was when i was exploring these food cultures and local economies around food that I started to notice two things, really. One is that the increasing homogeneity of food and farming, so that in, in many remote parts of the world, I was finding the same kind of approaches to food, to diet, to um, food retail, uh, supermarkets arriving, that kind of thing. Yes. And at the same time, I was observing that many of the stories I was interested in, which were about the indigenous or traditional food systems, they were disappearing. And there were people who were actively 
trying to save them because they were worried that something that they had inherited from the previous generation and perhaps had been part of that environment yes. and that community for a thousand years, it, it was on its way out and, 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 and becoming um, possibly extinct. Um, and as a, as a journalist and as a storyteller, I, I um, was intrigued by these stories and loved them as stories, and I wanted to tell them. But in 2018, I started to write the book, Eating to Extinction, and that's when I started to join the dots. And it went beyond these wonderful, beautiful stories of food in different parts of the world, of history and economics and trade and identity and in, in different environments, it became something of a global story. And, and actually it was through those food stories that I got to see the way the world had changed in the last century or so. It's very fascinating because we tend to think about food in a very almost reductionist way. I was in Cancun mm. recently and I went to this village outside of Cancun about two hours ago. And I met this uh, family and they speak a dialect. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's got many L's and X's in it. So I'm not gonna try to do that. <laughs> but this lady was telling me the story of how her daughter had married an American man and had moved to, I think, Maryland. And mm -hmm. in her mind, the only way to keep her culture alive is to teach her daughter how to make the food from their ancestral way, because it's the only way to teach the traditions, the culture, and the language, mm. and so on. It's almost as if food is a language, right? And we don't think about it in that way. But shifting yeah, gears, yeah. the thing that struck me the most reading your work, especially your new book, which I found an amazing read. In fact, I would say that as someone who follows food, it's one of maybe the newest ways of thinking about food. And it merges the thinking around economics and strategy as well. But the point I want to get to, and I'm going to talk about this more with you, is that we know from an investment perspective when we're about to retire that we need to have a diversity of holdings, right? We know now with energy security, you can't just rely on oil from one country and so on. You need a diversity of supply. But until I had read your work, I'd never thought about the diversity in the gene types of the food we have, especially the one piece, I forget which chapter it was, where you spoke about how there are these large companies that dominate the manufacturing and distribution of grain, and pretty much the entire world is just living off a few species of grain, mm -hmm. and there's no diversity in the food supply, and what that means when things go wrong. So let's talk more about that. Yeah, that's a really important part of the um, book's message really and then that's one of the driving ideas I, I mentioned that there were these wonderful stories that I discovered um, through an online catalogue that had been created by the international slow food movement which yes. exists in opposition to fast food and and actually wants to try and preserve these traditions because as you say um, they, they're not just food they are they can be a way of life they can yeah. be part of a cultural identity and also local economies as well. So there are now um, more than 5,000 uh, individual endangered foods in this online catalogue, which Slow Food called the Ark of Taste, like Noah's Ark yes. of Taste, disappearing foods and flavours. And um, they are also from a, a more than 130 different countries. So in the book, I've, I've selected 34 of them. Uh, and there are many others that, that pop up and, yeah. and, and uh, actually appear as characters in the book. But 
that that idea of diversity that that's the thing that really joined all of these different foods together because uh, as you mentioned in in terms of a, an investment portfolio you know, diversity is crucial uh, it gives you options it gives you a safety net um, and and likewise we are seeing that conversation right now in terms of energy supplies that you know because of the war in ukraine we are seeing um gr- you know n- new and and very strong calls for diversification of supply and a realization of a dependence on on uh, you know heavy dependence on one region and it, it's exactly the same as as food because one of the success stories of the 20th century was the production of huge amounts of calories yes. mostly from cereal crops so you know we're talking wheat rice maize and so on and part of that success was to create a type of uniformity that responded well to the um new chemicals and new uh, fossil fuel based yes. fertilizers and with that genetic uniformity, which then spreads around the world, we managed to cr- create um, record numbers of, uh, you know, tons of wheat and all those other crops that I've, I've mentioned. And in a sense, um, it's a success story, but even the architects of that system, which we now call the Green Revolution post-Second World War, people like uh, Norman Borlaug said, well, this is yeah. a short-term fix. It's not something that we can sustain um, long, long-term. long And, you know, it's, it's very energy-dependent and it takes a lot of water. And again, uniformity is the key. Now, that point that you made about the consolidation of the industries behind that, and that's exactly what happened in the uh, post-war period. So you had a number of um, chemical companies that provided the necessary chemicals for yeah. that new system of farming. And because of um, the connection between the crop and the system, i.e. the chemicals, those chemical companies start in the post-war period to buy up seed companies and they buy yeah. up small family companies until the, we reach the point in recent years in which just four um corporations now control more than 50 percent of the world's production and trade in seeds and so you can see how technical and scientific breakthroughs can create a form of um, success which then um, has has left as its legacy um, equally successful companies and a huge uh, amount of consolidation. Now, why, why should we be worried about that? Well, um, what we are seeing is the fragility of that system now. Um, let me give you two examples. One is that the genetic uniformity, which, which you referred to, well, um, <clears throat> if you have uh, monocultures of any single crop, it adds to the vulnerability of that crop. And the most famous example of that is in the globally traded banana, which is called the Cavendish. Yes. And it is effectively a clone. Um, so it, it's not, it, it's, um, you, you take out the suckers of one plant and you can then grow an, a completely uh, new, identical, uh, genetically identical plant. And so if you imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of hectares of that clone, if a disease hits one, of the plants 
it, it can affect them all. And that's exactly what's happening with the global um, banana, uh, traded banana crop. There are 1,500 different types of banana, but because of the ability to transport and grow very efficiently this one particular type of banana, the Cavendish, that's what we've created. Very um, uh, highly vulnerable um, uh, monocultures. So that that's one reason why diversity uh, is important and why homogeneity, uniformity is risky. And the the other one is that we we are aware that we have a, a changing climate now and that, that um, there are many factors that are becoming less predictable about our planet and exactly like that investment portfolio we need genetic diversity in all of our crops and also animal breeds yes so um each um let me give you the example of wheat there is stored away in um a seed vault in the arctic circle yep. called svalbard is um, more than 200,000 unique samples of wheat. And most farmers today will be given a recommended list, mostly um, influenced by the milling industry, of fewer than 10. So again, you know, when in, in very good conditions, with all the right inputs, they will grow and they will produce yeah. grain. When things become less predictable, they become highly risky and so this is why i'm arguing we need diversity um yeah so so i think we are and in a, in a sense even the word biodiversity which wasn't used that much just a decade yeah. ago is now becoming more familiar as a term and just to just to finish off this idea i mean here we are again i just need to make reference to this huge event that's taking place in the background of our conversation the war in ukraine um, you know, almost a third of the world's yeah. traded wheat comes from one region, the Black Sea region. And um, again, it's enabled an, a highly affordable, cheap food economy in many parts of the world. But again, you know, events overwhelm um, these these highly efficient but fragile systems. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And that's why fertilizer prices are going up, because fertilizer also comes from that region. Um, wheat prices, um, futures wheat wheat prices are going up as well because of the what's happening to a lot of the ports around the Black Sea. Um, so even that type of diverse, diversity of, of, of farming and yes. sources of our food and underpinned by genetic diversity is, is now becoming more appealing uh, because it does give us options. Yes, I mean, this concept of diversity is so important. And the problem I think we have in the general business world and the food business world is that we tend to use the word diversity quite extensively and biodiversity. Mm. But most of the community has a very narrow definition. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Mm -hmm. Preparation for this call, I had my team do a little piece of analysis for me. I made them pull up for over the last 10 years any mergers and acquisitions that had to be approved involving food companies. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to see is what was the judge's ruling for approving the merger or blocking the merger. And in almost all of those cases, and of course I kept this in the United States and the EU because the other countries are a bit hard to get uh, information on, mm -hmm. but all of the judges looked at 
whether a merger would cause an increase or a decline in the price of the food product that would be integrated as part of the merger. That's the first thing they looked at. Mm. The yeah. second thing they looked at is whether there would be security of supply if this went ahead. And the third thing, which I was surprised they didn't look at, is what would be the diversity of the type of produce. They, it's almost as if even the, the legal system doesn't take into consideration diversity when it's making decisions and mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. <laughs> that's a really good exercise. I wish I'd done that for my book. Um, but, but, you know, because what I looked at some of the, the you know, some of the um, mergers and acquisitions yes. as well. And, and for example, in the poultry industry, which is fascinating. And this matters because of the huge investments, investment, investment that's taken place. Um, it, so again, in, in parallel with the green revolution with crops, the same process happens with livestock as well. Yes, so absolutely, yeah, huge amounts of investment and research and more intensive systems based on genetic uniformity. And again, because there are um, a relatively small number of successful um, breeds of chicken, yes. um, th those are the ones that start to spread around the world and expand. And then we end up with a situation in which you've got three genetic lines of the, the world's most yes. successful as broiler chickens and owned now because yeah. of recent mergers and acquisitions by two corporations. Now, yes. again, you can ask, well, it's, it's, in a high, it's a highly efficient system. Why should we worry? Well, a couple of reasons. One is um, again, because of the success of producing yeah. very cheap chicken, we've created these systems, but now we are becoming more aware of the impact of avian flu outbreaks, for yeah. example. And again, it's like the Cavendish crop that if you've got, um, you know, genetically uniform um, animals um, confined in, a, in, 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 in huge numbers in, in these, in these spaces, then as we see around the world there are huge culls that have to take place so again there's risk in the system that, that emerged out of this relatively short-term success when i refer to short term i mean um in the book i talk about you know uh two million years of human evolution three hundred thousand years of homo sapiens twelve thousand years of of agriculture our most successful lifestyle to date as a species is as hunter-gatherers so if you put it if you put into the context of that scale of human history 50 60 years of cheap chicken it, you know it's not fully tested really yes. um so that you know that, that that's one reason why that um uh, uh, uniformity is, is potentially problematic. The other one is, um, well, there's the animal welfare issue, which has been raised in many, uh, well, it's been a while now that there have been quite vocal, active campaigns about the fact that many of these chickens are so fast growing and produce so much meat so quickly on relatively little feed. Again, you know, that's seen as a marker of success. Yes. But they become lame. Um, sometimes their legs can't support their bodies. And yes. what's interesting is that we are seeing, we are starting to see a diversification of poultry genetics, and particularly in the Netherlands, led by supermarkets and um, an agreement now that's that's consumer led and also with some welfare organizations as well. Um, it, it's a better chick, better chicken promise, um, which is driving the uh, 
adoption by retailers and poultry industries in, in Europe of slower growing um, birds. So it's, it's interesting that I think we are starting to see the brakes being put on the um, uniformity, homogenization yes. uh, of, of the system. And I mentioned the former chief executive of Danone, one of the biggest dairy companies in the world, highlighting this as somebody within the industry saying that, that we've gone too far. We've pushed this system too far yes. and we are seeing risks. You know, the fact that 95% of the uh, American dairy herd is one breed of cow, the, the Holstein. Yes. He saw that as risky and he was representing, you know, one of the world's biggest dairy companies. So I think even if you're just looking at, at it from a sense of future risk, from an investor's point of view um the future is looking more fragile because of you know contemporary you know current events and also diversity is looking more attractive for longer term investors i would argue yes i think everything you say is spot on and the challenge is going to be i think is twofold here one is that the food industry is incredibly fragmented mm. and when everyone thinks about risk in food, it's always about risk of security of supply at the right price. It's never about the risk of homogeneity and what that means when you've got maybe two species of chicken supplying, you know, whatever it is, two thirds of the world, and mm. those two species at risk of a disease. And what do you do in that case? In fact, I was speaking to the chief procurement officer of one of the largest fast food chains in the world. And he was explaining to me how they expand around the world. And he said, when they go to a new country where, whereby the country may not be used to working with fast food chains, they bring in these specialists, which teach the local farmers which types of chicken to raise, which type of beef to raise that works best for the broilers and equipment they have, because mm -hmm. the equipment they have cooks chicken in a certain time and they need to have a certain type of chicken that matches those specifications. So what you have when these American companies expand internationally, they also encourage local communities to then adopt the farming practices and taking the species of chicken they are used to working with. Yeah. So it introduces actually more homogeneity in the world. But the point I was thinking about here is that the message of risk of homogeneity is something that we've got to get a way to teach corporate America what it means. Because people, just to get efficiencies, economies of scale, the right prices, to make sure something works in the system they have, they simply think about risk in terms of pricing, but not what it means when they have lack of diversity in their food supply. Mm -hmm. But I do think that... Um... Again, there's a recognition that thinking about the longer term and, yes. and again, there is so much now that needs to be considered when, when you're thinking about long term investments in the food system, yes. parts of the food system. So if we think about you know, following on from COP26, the, yeah. the, the um, CO2 emissions and, and in fact, you know, other emissions from agriculture need to be reduced um, now that that might have it have appeared to have faded away in in, in recent months but um, because again because of you know this conflict that's underway but at the same time that is not going to disappear or and therefore if the current system is underpinned by huge amounts of inputs which it which it actually is you know so fertilizer is yeah. one of the big biggest you know applications of you know particularly um, gas as, as a fossil fuel um, that's not going to 
disappear and therefore looking into the into the future in which there might be more action from governments there might be possibly more regulation more legal issues as well in in terms of keeping on uh, with this current system maintaining status quo you know that does look risky and so and i've been looking at some of the yes um investment um networks um that are now keenly interested in the future of food and for example they they are trying to um move some of their um funds away from what they perceive to be uh risky uh, food systems and in specifically uh, intensive livestock because of the risk of uh, disease outbreaks yeah. or because there could be some some issue linked to that which could result in um, litigation for example so i think highly efficient productive and you know for a very long time profitable system is now um, showing fragilities it happened during the pandemic it's yes. happening now in terms of the war in Ukraine. And, you know, and I think there are also other factors as well, the relationship between the food that's produced by that system and public health budgets as well. So if we're seeing obesity and type two diabetes increasing, well, that's not sustainable either. And it could be that in a certain period of time, we will see more aggressive government action to try and change um, people's diets because it will become unaffordable for them to maintain public yes. uh, you know health systems to treat these food related um, illnesses yes in your writing some of the things you spoke about are things i had not considered but when you explain them they make a lot of sense to me there's a story you had it is either in the book or one of your articles whereby you spoke about how the food industry has tried to breed out bitterness Mm, yeah, and I'd never thought about that because you're right. Things are a lot sweeter now than they were 30 years ago. <laughs> Let's talk about that because it's very interesting and in what it means for the changes we are making to food. Yeah. So what, the approach I've taken in the book is to divide it into ten, ten parts. So yeah. it starts with wild, which does link to the long history of hunter gatherers and how they yes uh, how they survived for for so long and then it moves into cereals and vegetables and fruit but and and then it's subdivided into these chapters each chapter tells the story of a specific food but each chapter and each food reveals something different about the history of yes food the history our relationship with the planet the way you know industry has transformed those foods in the case of sourness and bitterness um that that appears in the first section of the book wild because i make this argument that many of the crop breeders and scientists interested in the future of agriculture really want to save the wild ancestors of the foods that we depend yes. on so they do, they do want to save the wild ancestors of wheat and corn and 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 citrus is is also important as well and the reason for that is because many of the things that we have bred out of modern varieties for high yielding um, properties and you know, uh, to make them yes. uh, if taste a certain way um, we've we've actually bred out some of the, the important traits that could be extremely valuable and in the case of citrus i traveled to northeastern india and i was with indigenous people there who still live among wild citrus and they have a cultural preference because of what's around them of bitterness and sour and what has happened is that that is the origin 
of most of the world's citrus and the fruit travels around the world it's moved around the world as as populations yeah. move and then it's it adapts it, it cross pollinates and, and creates hybrids and also in in the in the more recent era you know, people take a scientific approach and they breed uh, more desirable in, in terms of certain flavors more transportable uh, bigger yes. fleshier and so um, what we did is we took those wild, bitter sours, made them um, larger in size and made them sweeter and sweeter. The problem being is that the um, the, <laughs> the chemical compounds that, yes. that create bitterness, that's part of the plant's defense system. Yes. And it's also it's also beneficial to humans as well, because it can contains these really important chemical compounds um, and the cyanins uh, hugely beneficial to us. And so when those um, new, modern, fleshier, uh, sweeter uh, citrus varieties are then grown, we need to spray them with pesticides to yes. you know, keep the pests off them. Uh, you know, and also we've lost those beneficial compounds. So one level looked like a really desirable uh, thing yes. to do is actually um, does remove some of the benefits and i think that you know you can you can apply that principle to to so much of the the food that we now grow um in some senses you could argue it's you know short-term gains but you know long-term benefits have been lost and so many of those crop breeders are bringing back some of those traits so we saw huge devastation to the american uh, citrus industry yes. a few years back because of um something called citrus greening disease which is carried by a pest and uh, there was no resistance to this so billions of dollars were being lost and it turns out that there is resistance but you can find it in some wild citrus varieties such as the ones i found in yes. northeast india there's even one in australia called the finger lime so we need that we need those wild genetic resources and we need that diversity otherwise more billions of dollars are going to be lost in production. It's interesting the way you frame this, right? I want to unpack it for the audience because it's important for them to think about this from a risk perspective. We have certain fruits. Let's take the example of bitter fruits, right? Or bitter uh, produce. Over mm. years of natural selection and trying to survive the elements, certain plant species or vegetables have developed bitterness as a defense mechanism. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And then what we've done is that the species that ate those plants, they also found some benefit from those compounds. But now when we've bred out the bitterness, is it correct to say we're in effect creating weaker plants, which we then have to protect with more fertilizers and pesticides? Mm. Yeah, well, it's part of the domestication process. So in a sense, we become dependent on the plants because yes. we grow them in large numbers and the plants become dependent on us because we create a system in which they are nurtured and you know they they um become part of a system uh yeah absolutely so i think that's the key thing that that um again you know huge amounts of diversity <laughs> Uh, were created because of domestication and um you know the problem is and and i think it's too simplistic to call it globalization i think yes. it goes beyond that because i think the you know again it was the science and the technology and the way that spread around the world and in some in most cases for good reason so a lot of these high yielding plants were created to try and avert famine you know pe people were going hungry they, they, yes. and 
it, it could be that they were going hungry because of political and economic factors. Yes, absolutely. But, but yeah, but the scientists came up with a solution which you know let's produce more calories of the of the of more of the same food. Um, at least we have it. At least we can feed people, and um, and and that's how we end up with. Um, the, the current food system but again this is why i wanted to cover so such a long span of history yeah. in the book is that if you if you, and i did spend some time with um hunter gatherers in in east africa the hadza there are only 200 left out of a, a tribe of a thousand people uh, only 200 practicing no form of agriculture at yes. all their their potential menu consists of 800 different plant and animal species they are thoroughly modern humans who are living as hunter-gatherers because they choose that lifestyle but they are also a lens on human evolution as well and so it's very clear that diversity and these wild you know these chemical compounds in wild plants were very much part of our evolution and our adaptation to survival on this planet um, and I think a lot of the uh, bitter leafy green vegetables, which are now seen to be some of the healthiest things that we can have as part of the human diet, they've become milder as well yeah. because of, you know, and more, so in, in, the, <laughs> in the words of a, you know, a modern day crop breeder, perhaps more palatable. But that's, that's also because our, our palate has been changed by that system. Nobody's ever approached yeah. me and said, well, would you like a sweeter, you know, milder yes. tasting spinach or, <laughs> you know, a, or a sprout or whatever. So, um, but I think that's just the way in which, you know, things have, have developed in the feedback loop between certainly the, you know, the, the science of food and, you know, the, these emerging technologies, more efficient and, a wide-reaching distribution networks um and, you know the consolidation of of companies so that these foods can reach into new markets and you know again we are programmed we are programmed to, to love you know sugar fat and salt yes but in in nature they are in very short supply and so when yes. they are given to us in abundance we will take them uh and so you know it, it's so complex and complicated but i think in writing the book, it became clear to me that all these incremental steps and so many unintended consequences. Well, what I found fascinating was um, there are a lot of things that we take for granted that we think we know very well, because it's just always been that way. But when you read the book, you realize it hasn't always been that way. And there was an example, and I'm not sure if which country it was, it may have been mm -hmm. France, where you talked about this milk that using a traditional process, I think it was turned into butter or something like that. And now we've got to use industrial processes to achieve mm. the same effect for something that used to occur naturally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so th this, uh, I mean, the whole process of all the whole, whole history of cheese making is, yeah. is fascinating in that um, all those crops that I mentioned that were domesticated around 10,000 years ago, wheat in the fertile crescent in the middle east um uh, rice in china maize in in mexico um well there were humans who survived without needing or not being able to grow crops and so if you yes. think about communities that must have headed into high altitude mountainous areas well they did survive and they survived because they took animals with them yeah that could could consume the pasture, you know, the, what the grasses and the wildflowers and the herbs and so on, and convert it into milk for the humans then to either consume directly 
or more ingeniously to actually process that into um, cheese. So mm -hmm. more, you know, a firm, yes. <laughs> basically taking out a lot of the moisture and using fermentation and microbes to create a solid protein rich yes. version of that milk. And what we now understand is so important as well as this diversity of plants and crops that I, that we've, we've talked about is a diversity of, of microbes as well. So bacteria and yeasts and so on. And it turns out that, that in those very rich, pure pastures, um, they would not have, um, they didn't need to add yes. a coagulant or a, um, or something to, to start the fermentation process because it was all in the environment. So the, so-called starter cultures which now are made in a laboratory that's the um agent that starts the acidification yeah. process that that a makes the milk into cheese and also raises the lactic acid bacteria levels which helps to preserve it and make it safe now that that's now part of a highly sophisticated um industry uh, again, highly consolidated so that one company in, in yeah. Denmark produces more than it produces the starter culture, all the enzymes. Um, this is the rennet that, that actually is the um, is the coagulant. Yeah. Um, it produces those products for more than half the world's cheeses. Um, so highly, highly technical um, process to produce that but there are cheeses still made today in, in in a way in which you do not need starter cultures because the microbial um populations in the milk and in the equipment used by the farmers is so microbially rich yes. in this very safe lactic um acid bacteria that the cheese you know starts that process well, the milk starts that process itself and, and that's how the cheese making um, process happens well on one level you could say well you know that's an old traditional technique yeah. you can't make the world's cheeses that way why should i care well um the emerging science of the gut microbiome in which there is huge amounts of investment underway now that this these trillions of microbes that we all host in our guts it, we now consider it to be almost like a, a hidden organ in our bodies that's influential to our physical and mental health. Um, the more diverse our gut microbiomes, the more beneficial that is to us. Yes. And to make to make our gut microbiomes more diverse, we need a diverse diet, and also we need diverse microbes as well which is why some of the um, scientists the leading experts in the gut microbiome are big fans of you know raw milk blue cheese for example yeah. because they they see it as a microbially rich food yes. that feeds us and benefits us in that way and so i wanted just to tell the story really of the evolution of cheese making because it's fascinating as a, as a survival strategy and also um this, you know, I talk about endangered foods in, in um, the book, but this is a story of endangered microbes. And there are many people now, and you know, with the fermentation revival, people might be now more familiar with sauerkraut and kimchi, kombucha, all of those things. Uh, and again, people are, are, are very interested in them, um, partly because they, they can taste delicious, but also because they now see them as extremely beneficial and they are great ways of preserving food. 
So it's it's win win win. But you know, there was a real battle underway in the 20th century to drive out microbes. Absolutely, yes. Foods, yeah. And when I met um, a former CEO of Christian Hansen, who actually yes. started out his working career as a medical doctor, he said that when he did his training, he was told that all microbes are bad microbes. Yeah. And that you don't want them in in any setting, uh, including your food. And in the in in the space of his career, he then started to make sure that that company was have, investing heavily in the future of the gut microbiome because the whole thing had changed. And actually, we were seeing good, um, safe microbes as extremely beneficial to our health. So um, is that reductionist? science that you mentioned earlier that we thought we knew so much yeah and that we were taking we were on the right course and yet we've we are still learning um about how little we do know and how complex this is and why some of these traditions have huge value and you know thinking about this purely from an economics and industrial engineering viewpoint over many decades we developed a view that microbes and bacteria were bad for us we then mm-hmm. built industrial processes over many years and many decades with that viewpoint in mind, where we manufactured things by eliminating all microbes without distinguishing between good and bad microbes. And now we've got to go through a process again of figuring out how do we build industrial processes that don't remove the bad microbes. But the key point here is we're talking only about microbes in this one example. Mm, but there yeah. are many other things industrial processes have removed that are good for us. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, it's understandable how we got here because uh, you know, on one level, it, it worked. Yes, um, it worked. Again, based on what we knew. And again, we're learning. You know, so I think there's this idea of true cost accounting, which yeah. you know, many people are now really engaged with in talking about food, that the, the real costs of so-called cheap food are never really uh, made clear, particularly to consumers. And so when you think about some of those aspects that we've already discussed, so um, you know, the, the, the health consequences of some foods or the environmental consequences of some production systems, they should be factored into the to the cost of food and also yes. as we know billions and billions of dollars of subsidies are used to underpin that system now if those subsidies could be deployed in a, a true cost accounting food system in which we are joining the dots between agriculture and and human health and also the environmental impact and also thinking about you know post cops you know what what do we need yes to do in our relationship with the planet well we would end up with a not only a, yeah we would end up with a very different food system and probably end up with very different food so but you know we have ended up with you know these processed foods because they were so economically desirable and scalable and then yeah and scalable and also um they could fit this just-in-time model that that you know again yes when things work well it works well when they don't it it can collapse and break down as we saw during the pandemic and certainly as as we are seeing now in terms of these conversations about energy and and actually now increasingly you know the commodity crops that come out of the black sea region so you know um again i just wanted to put these success stories in the context 
of a much, much bigger timescale to say we, it's almost as if we're living through one big experiment, really. Yeah. And there are still lessons to be learned from the past. And actually, perhaps we've been far too reductionist in our assessment of the success stories of the modern food system. So for the audience, the reason why I'm putting such a big emphasis on diversity of food type is because if you look at where we are in the world today, we're going through a major change in the sense that 1990 was quite famous for two major reasons. One is that it was a collapse of the former Soviet Union, which brought a lot of cheap labor that was talented onto the market. And at the same time, China started integrating into the West, which is again, a lot of cheap labor onto the market. When we first started building factories in China, the ratio between Western and Chinese labor costs was about one to 26, I think. It's now one to four. Mm. What that means is that naturally labor costs are going up, which means inflation naturally rises. So that, that period of low inflation we had, which was benefiting from cheap Chinese and Eastern European labor, we're getting past that point because right now, for example, the you know uh, GDP per capita in the Czech Republic is almost, I think, more than Spain's at this point. So if we're in a naturally high inflation cycle, I worry what happens if some of these crops, which are genetically homogenous get hit with some kind of disease what's that going to do to inflation going forward it's scary to think about it yeah well we're seeing we're seeing right now with um again the situation in ukraine most of the um those crops uh so if you split it down into the edible grains and then livestock feed um huge amounts um headed towards you know countries such as uh, Egypt, yes, and and Turkey, uh, Yemen, you know, also the World Food Programme was you know, that's where it sources most of its um, uh, grain as well. Yeah. So in, in a sense, uh, you say that, you know in 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 those more affluent economies, uh, such as the one I'm talking to you from in the UK, yeah. um, the the food price inflation that will be triggered by that, I you know, most of us can bear the cost. Yes, but it's in those extremely fragile fragile economically and fragile politically as well it's those places that are most dependent on um on the black sea wheat that yes. um now, now people are looking on and thinking well there's huge amounts of instability that that we saw during the arab spring and again we had bad you know we had some pretty poor harvests leading up yeah. to that and also we saw quite serious food price inflation as as one of the 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 you know the triggers for um the, those protests uh and, and so i think we are now far more attuned to the fact that you know the the domino effect coming from conflict in a highly productive wheat growing area um and yeah so then add to that you know if, if we have climatic conditions in the next 12 months that cause a, a bad harvest yeah i mean it, it's it, it will be disastrous for so many parts of the world because you, you know conflict plus disease um, and a good combination. Food, pro- food prices and then food price inflation. Yeah, it's re- it's really really problematic. And some of this is not going to go out of the system for a while. So I think you know high energy prices transfer into high fertilizer prices. So we had fertilizer yeah. factories in the north of England um, that actually shut down because of the high energy costs. The companies just decided to close um, production. And yeah. what we then realized is that the fertilizer factories were, um, one of the byproducts they produced was CO2, which yeah. was used in the fizzy drinking by the you know the soda 
industry and also to use to stun animals in slaughterhouses as well. So all of a sudden revealed to us is this highly efficient, but now fragile system uh, that, you know, a knock in one part of the food system creates a, a consequence in another. And that's, yeah, you're absolutely right that I think inflation in this system will reveal a lot more of the fragility of this interconnectedness and these efficiencies that you know we've built into the system, but there are only efficiencies when things are working well. And I think one of the things that I've noticed in this entire discussion we've had, which is quite telling, and you've done a good job in terms of weaving it in the right direction, is that many of the decisions that could cause this increase in inflation, and already is to some degree, is not entirely driven by climate change issues. It's by economic decisions made by policymakers and business leaders to get the most profit, as opposed to being cornered due to climate change issues. Mm. In, in a sense, food has been a priority, and in a sense, in another sense, it hasn't. When I yeah. by that I mean that when when we have um, large, you know, scale disasters or concerns, we can really pull out the stops and make a change, which uh, uh, you know, a real shift in in agriculture and food, as we did after the Second World War and you know, the Green Revolution, which we yes. discussed. But at the same time. Um, we we haven't really thought that much about food. As long as it's been out there um, in production systems, creating abundance, governments really haven't engaged that much apart from trade and subsidies and just making sure the food flows. But I I think beyond that, there's been extremely low intervention. And in terms of a food strategy, that's not really something that governments have. They've been in this extremely privileged position for the last few decades to leave it mostly to markets. But in, in a sense, that is, well, I think as, we, as we're now seeing with energy as well, I think the consequences of that, of, of uh, leaving it to markets and not really having a strategic uh, approach to food, which I think actually China does have more yeah. than most, um, I, think, <laughs> I think that's just been so complacent and I think yes. that we're we've we're now being you know many many governments now and and their populations are going to be uh, seriously impacted by that miscalculation that food can just be, you know, just assume that the market will deliver that the governments yes. really don't need to intervene, plan, invest, and create long term strategies. Yeah, in in my previous life, I used to be a corporate strategy and corporate finance partner at some of these big consulting firms. And we developed a technique from the financial services industry whereby if a country, for example, was only using oil to fulfill its energy needs, we could actually work out the cash flow at risk, the amount of money they could lose. Mm -hmm. Everything went south. And we could tell them that if you bought 10% of your energy from coal, you bought another 5% from wind, another 20% of solar, this would Mm -hmm. be the benefit of diversifying your feedstock. It's almost as if someone needs to do the same thing on the food side, which is to work out the benefits of having a diverse subspecies of food supply, because nobody's really doing this at that point. But to really want to do that, you do need to be thinking, you know, beyond an electoral cycle yes. and really long-term. And that's, that's the problem. That, that is the real problem because as, again, just the, the prospect now of um, 
increasing uh, inflation and household budgets to, you know, to do anything. Yeah. To do anything that will create, you know, even a, a short or medium term increase in food prices is, is, is especially extreme. now, especially yeah. now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So in a sense, just at exactly the right moment when we really do need to have a longer term, when we need longer term strategic thinking about food production uh, is exactly the time when it's 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 unlikely to happen. I mean, we've been waiting in the UK for something called the National Food Strategy to be turned into a, a white paper. Yes. So you know the first the early stages in in um, in the development of legislation that will create a food strategy. It's just been delayed, delayed and delayed month after month. And again, it's just been one crisis after another. But this cannot be put off for much longer because, again, we have learned so much through the pandemic and now with this war in Europe. Um, many people who who are experts in food security yeah. believe that we should be learning lessons now and that we do need to implement strategies. And as you've just described with the, the assessment of risk in, in energy supplies, it, the same it, with food. And I would even argue perhaps even more important because obviously we all need to eat and we will, you know, all kinds of problems happen um, when food starts to run out. And already around the world, governments are starting to hoard. You know, we are not, yes, we are happening. seeing usual, yeah, we're seeing the usual trade flows of, of food and agricultural exports grind to a halt, you know, governments are nervous and they're holding on to supplies and they're, they're they're storing things whereas before again you know there was that that sense of um it was inefficient to hold on to supplies of grains and to store too much so if you are listening to this podcast and you are in government you have an ability to influence government or any part of the food industry whether it's fertilizer agriculture and so on i think one of the big questions dan and i are asking you to do is to think about what has the lack of diversity in food costing you mm. and how do we fix that yeah and i think diversity think really broadly about that term it is about genetic diversity absolutely of, yes. of crops for adaptation in an unpredictable world it's all about diversity of systems as well and you know to have a diversified food economy can be extremely beneficial as well i mean there are some great success stories of innovation and uh, you know for example um in the book i talk about this really obscure humble food that went extinct in, in southern germany it was a lentil um, yes. It had allowed, enabled people to stay on the land for thousands of years. And again, one of these you know, difficult places to farm, but the lentil was their key to survival. And it then became something that was part of their identity and a delicious source of food. A farmer um, spent years and years trying to find the seeds to bring it back, which he did. And it was an inspirational story that was uh, picked up by farmers in Sweden um, and they looked at what had once grown there and they started businesses to try and bring back these legumes, which are really yeah. healthy foods, good for the soil. Win, win, win. You know, I mean, really, really um, important neglected food. The Swedish farmers in, in turn inspired three guys in the east of England who were looking at future food security um, from a research perspective, came across this story and then started up their own business, which is called Hodmer Dodds, and they're now selling 
uh, legumes in supermarkets in the UK because they did research that showed them that fava beans were growing in Britain 3000 years ago. And actually, you know, it was such an important food. And now they've created this, this really attractive brand and these great tasting peas and beans. Um, so again, diversity can be, you know, in, in the case of you know, that type of food, beneficial agriculturally, also um, in terms of nutrition and you know, new business. Yes. And I want to emphasize a point for the listeners here. We've always looked at the cost of food supply, which we should always take into consideration. We've always looked at the security of food supply, which we should always take into consideration. But as Dan has so eloquently pointed out, we've got to look at the cost of a lack of diversity from a genetic viewpoint. Because I think in a book, in one of the articles you mentioned, Dan, you can go into a supermarket and you can see 200 different types of bread, but they're from four subspecies of grain. Mm. And that's a lack of genetic diversity. And yeah. that's what we're trying to avoid. But Dan, thank you so much. This is one of the best discussions I've had. I mean, I recommend your book to everyone. I recommend people to follow your show, read what you're doing. Whenever I meet anyone in the food industry, I always recommend that they read your book because what you're talking about is not about food. It's about the future of mankind in a way because we need to learn the mistakes of the past and not repeat them in the future. Thanks so much. And I, and I think that's a really good summary of, of the book. It is about food. I use food to tell stories. But the, yeah, again, I, you know, what I like to think is that they are extremely big universal themes um, that will be relevant to people, even if they don't think they are that interested in yeah. food and farming. I think there are many lessons to be learned from the history and the story of food, us and the planet. So thanks very much. It's been a fascinating conversation and I've, you know, I've loved trying to apply the ideas in the book to this um, you know, conversation about economics and uh, uh, you know, trade and, and business as well. So it's been really interesting for me. Thank you. Dan, absolute pleasure. I always look forward to your shows and your latest pieces and we'll definitely be in touch. Take care. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.